Welcome to Mates in Courage, brought to you by Good News Unlimited. Be part of a conversation between Graham Hood, champion fisherman, airline pilot and school dropout, and Ali Gonzalez, wannabe fisherman and holder of more useless degrees than you can poke a stick at. What could these two possibly have in common? The fact that neither of them have anything to hide. That's what. Mates in Courage. Take a listen. Good to see you, Ellie. Yeah, great to see you too, Graeme. Yes, we're about to embark on another adventure with our microphones and our conversations, so that's really good. Oh, it's always a trip. It's always <laughs> a trip. Speaking of trips, you, you stayed here last night with Michelle and I, and um, we watched a story on the 737 MAX about the, all the dramas they're having with that aeroplane and how it, you know the horrendous uh, crashes that have occurred and everything, and... and um, I'm I'm really intrigued to talk about your story because you were once booked on a flight that was shot down by a Russian anti-aircraft missile. Yes. Well, Tell the us. Russians deny that. They do, but it's yeah. pretty obvious. Yeah, MH17, I think everyone remembers that story. Yeah, that was a Malaysian Airlines Boeing 777 from Amsterdam to where? Kuala Lumpur. Yeah. And then I was uh, with my son travelling on from Kuala Lumpur to Brisbane. Yeah, what were you guys doing over there anyway? Well... That's, uh, that's an interesting little story in itself. I, I head up a, a Christian gospel ministry, yep. and so I had, I had some speaking engagements. Uh, I'd been to India, actually, uh, just uh, visiting some friends there. And then I had some speaking engagements in Europe, yep. and we were in Brussels. And we were coming back via Amsterdam on Malaysian Airlines. The backstory to this is that we've never been overseas with my family on any international trips or holidays yeah. because basically it's, uh, it's too expensive and I only travel because work pays for me to travel. Mm-hmm. And my son, uh, about a year out from this trip, when I told them I was gonna, my family was going to do the trip, he said, well, I want to go, Dad. And I said, you can't come. He said, why not? I said, we haven't got money for you to come. And Good News Unlimited, the ministry I lead, mm. you know, can't pay for family members to have holidays. Mm. And he said, well, I still want to come. I said, well, if you want to come, then you, you have to, uh, you're going to have to pay for your airfare at least. Mm-hmm. I'll pay for the rest. He was only 14 at the time. So he came up himself with a scheme where after school he would uh, come home and bake chocolate chip cookies. Oh, I remember that. Right, yeah. Yeah, I remember, my waistline remembers that too. Yeah, you were good customers. I think I paid for his ticket. <laughs> <laughs> and then what he'd do is uh, he'd go around the neighbourhood mm. uh, selling chocolate chip cookies. Mm. And now he's handsome, but back then he was cute. Yeah. And so, you know, people bought cookies on But he had to sell a heck of a lot of cookies. Uh, eventually, after about uh, six months... You know, of doing this, it was a bit tough some days. He managed to raise his airfare, so it was a special trip for him and for me. Yeah, being able to travel together with him—they were good cookies, by the way. They were really good. Yeah, and he hasn't really good. He hasn't baked them since. He may have looked cute, but I remember being on the receiving end of water bombs, and, and we used to have some horrendous water fights. Your son and I—you remember those? Yeah. Anyway, when I booked the tickets. I ran the itinerary past my son and I was going to travel back on MH17, the exact flight that was shot down over Ukraine, over eastern Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And so I showed my son, uh, we basically were catching the train from Brussels to Amsterdam. In Europe, everything's close. And from there, 
we're just catching a, a bus or whatever or another train to the airport. So we weren't going to stay in Amsterdam at all. But my son said to me, uh, Dad, I'd like to spend a full day cycling in Amsterdam. And so instead of booking the tickets on the day that I was going to book them, I booked the tickets for the following day so we could spend a day riding bikes in Amsterdam. So mm, we, we, stayed, we stayed overnight. And I woke up in Amsterdam. Boy, we stayed in a dingy dive, by the way. Yeah. The smell of weed was wafting in through the windows, <laughs> really? and uh, it was yeah, it was yeah. an interesting stay yeah. in Amsterdam. I woke up, and uh, as as you do, I checked the news on my phone, and there'd been this airplane that had been shot down over Ukraine, and I didn't join the dots. Mm. I didn't realise that it was MH17, but as I kept reading, a Malaysian airline flight, and then I saw the flight number. And I realised that this was the flight that we were meant to have been on if we'd uh, left that day. Good right? grief. But instead we spent that day cycling around Amsterdam. As you can imagine, I sent a message to my wife telling her I was all right. I was wondering what I would say to my son when he woke up. Mm. And uh, by the time he woke up and he was alert, mm. uh, I'd checked with Malaysian Airlines and apparently the flight I was booked on, which was MH17, the exact same flight on the following day, was still scheduled to fly. Mm. So the conversation I had with my son went along the lines of, look, this has happened. The plane that we were going to go on has been shot down. I think it's by a missile. It flies over eastern Ukraine where there's a, a war going on. Mm. Uh, I've checked with Malaysian Airlines. Uh, the same flight will be flying tomorrow. Do we come home or don't we? Or do we just wait? I said to him, the chances of the same thing happening are very remote and they'll probably reroute the, the flight so yeah. that it avoids that area, obviously, now, mm. which is what I'd uh, gotten from Malaysian Airlines, that they would probably do that. Mm. And he agreed that, uh, yes, uh, we would be on that flight the, the next day. We had a good day with my son riding the bike around Amsterdam, I guess. wasn't a good day for many other people. Mm. But in the afternoon, I, ha I had another brush with death. Now, they've, they've got tram lines everywhere, and I'm not used to riding bikes, particularly yeah. in Amsterdam. Yeah. And as I'm riding along, I got the, the front wheel of my bike got uh, jammed in one of the tram line mm -hmm. ruts. At the same time, some bystanders warned me that there was a car coming behind me, because mm. right, trams and cars share the same road. Mm. And I looked back and, and there was a car close behind me and I tried to avoid it by steering the bike and that's when the wheel went in the tram rut and I went head over heels, uh, the bike basically, and landed, landed on the ground. You know, my bike went flying and the car managed to stop just in time. Good grief. So it, it was like God sort of trying to remind me that one way or another, it could have been my time. Luckily enough, I wasn't injured or hurt at all, mm. which was quite amazing. The next morning, we got up and we went to uh, Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam. Mm. And it was quite a surreal experience because the airport was full of reporters, news trucks, vans, camera crews everywhere, mm. because information about what had happened to the previous day's flight was starting to filter through, filter through. Mm. yeah, mm. as they're putting the pieces together. I've got to say, it was the shortest check-in queue I've ever been in, mm. right? I think a lot of the passengers... Uh, had uh, cancelled their flights for obvious reasons. Mm. More than that, after we'd checked in, the flight was actually delayed by two and a half hours, which knowing what had happened to MH17 the previous day was kind of concerning because you don't know what's going on and they weren't giving any information. 
but it was just such a surreal experience getting onto the exact same sort of aircraft as had gone down the the previous day, knowing what had happened. So the aeroplane would have been only half full or something like that, was it? Yeah. 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 And I knew from the news reports that the airplane had been shot down just after lunch service had finished two or three hours into the flight. Mm -hmm. And uh, they served lunch, and I've got to say, I didn't digest it very well. How were the cabin crew? Were they subdued? Because their friends would have been killed the day before. See, I never thought about that. Yeah. But being in the industry, of course. And and the pilots, likewise, would have been flying along and it would have been at the forefront of their thoughts, that their friends, they would have known oh. the two pilots who were killed. Yeah, they would have, wouldn't they? They would have easily known them. You know, the cabin crew were thoroughly professional. There was nothing out of the ordinary in terms of their service mm. uh, that I could detect. Uh, there was no announcement by the captain about anything at all. Mm. I mean, out of the ordinary. Yeah. They were just thoroughly professional. Mm. I suspect that thinking about it, they probably didn't want to alarm the passengers in any way. They put the passengers first. Yeah, well, that's that's the training. Mm. That's how it is. And it would have been, uh, it would have been a very sombre experience. They, they would have spent quite a bit of time counselling before they left. Yeah. They would have, yeah. It would have been a thorough briefing before they left on how they were going to manage the flight. Were they fit yeah. to operate the flight? Mm. But, you know, I... I never pay much attention oh, now and then to the, the satellite map mm. that shows you where the, the plane is. Yeah. Uh, but that day I, I looked at it very carefully for the first few hours of the flight and they rerouted it to pass through, right through the south of Ukraine, mm. nowhere near the, where the, uh, the incident had happened. And, you know, after they'd cleared up the, the lunch service and a little time had passed, I felt very relieved. Mm. So... Was there a time after the flight that you took stock of perhaps you may have been on that? Did you consider the consequences had you not changed the booking? Well, there were, you know, there were people from different nationalities, but there were quite a lot of Australians on there. I don't remember how many because mm. obviously, you know, Australians coming back from Europe would have been on that flight. I mean, in terms of the consequences, you don't think about them. I, I remember seeing a photo, and they don't show too many of these photos, but it was online in a news story of the body of a passenger still strapped to his seat. Yeah. Just landed up upright. And that impacted me. Could have been mm. me, my son. But you know the you know, I do owe my life to my son, you know? Yeah. But I think the thought that struck me more than any other thought was, you know, why not me? You know, Graham, that I'm a, a follower of Jesus mm. and I, I believe in God. And I believe that God intervenes in our in our lives in, in different ways that we can't always understand or or explain. Mm. Uh, but you know the, the question obviously it would have been you Graham you would have thought the same yeah why not me and then the next question is you know why was I spared yeah and I have no answer to that there was a whole bunch of you know world-leading cancer specialists on that flight that perished if yeah. I remember correctly yeah. and I know that I lead a Christian ministry but I don't think that uh, you know I'm more important than them for example and my understanding of the way that God is tells me that God doesn't love me more than them, you know, because I'm a better human being or because I'm a follower of Jesus or for whatever reason, I don't believe that, you know, I was spared because God loves me more than he loved them. So what that episode of my life made me determine is that I'm going to make the very best use of my life that I can Mm. and that I'm going to use my time for the good of others and to serve him. At the end of the day, 
there's always questions we can't answer. Does God love the the man or woman who pulled the trigger that launched the missile? Yes. Mm. Yes, he must. Otherwise, he's not, not a God I can respect. Mm. That's a big question, isn't it? That is. As you look back on that, I have to ask you this question. How do you feel about dying? Um, sitting here now, as I look back, I've done more living in my life even to date, and I'm 53, mm. so I'm still relatively youngish. Uh, I've lived more than some people live in nine or ten lives, basically, in terms of you know the experiences I've had, things I've gone through, the achievements that I've managed to achieve, just the sheer number of jobs I've had, mm-hmm. you know. And I think I've you know been a good father, a good husband, good son. And I think I've contributed to the lives of many people. I don't often realise that, but, you know, it takes people to tell you sometimes. Um, well, you've had an impact on my life. Oh, well, thank you, Graeme. <laughs> no, no, it's true because um, uh, we came together as friends at a very, uh, very tumultuous, pivotal point in my life. Mm. I mean, when I met you, it was probably within a year of the date that I'd set to kill myself. Mm. And I was going through some pretty dramatic change and meeting mm. you was a profound part of that, which has led to us sitting here 12 years, 13 years further on doing what we're doing right now. Yeah, amazing. It is amazing. So what I'm saying is that if my time were to come today, mm. I'm ready and happy to go. Mm-hmm. If there's more for me to do, I'm ready and happy to keep going. I've still got big dreams and, and big plans. I, so you're not scared of dying? No, I'm not scared of dying at all. I yeah. don't want to die, but I'm not scared of it. Do you have any fear around, uh, not the actual dying part, but do you have any fears about what you leave behind or do you have any anxiety about that? No, none whatsoever. Death itself is not an issue for me, but, you know, I don't like the process of dying sometimes. You know, uh, I think it'd be great to have a McDonald's and KFC diet and, and have a massive heart attack and boom, the lights go out. What a great way to go sometimes because I've seen people die and sometimes it's a hard time dying. Yeah, the actual process, it, it's, I don't think there's anything more intimate than death. Mm-mm. And I think um, what helps me to, in, in my approach to it is my lack of fear around the actual death itself is that um, I don't feel that I'll ever be alone in that process. You know, you and I have the same beliefs. We worship the same God and I believe that there'll be a, um, a wonderful beautiful warm feeling as the God I love is holding my hand as I'm going through the process. So yeah, I have no fear about dying. My my fear is around the ramifications that my death will have on those people whom I love and who love me. I'm not scared of dying, but I, I'm not real happy about the grief process. Mm, well, that's know, true. I often think about, you know, if I go before Michelle, what it'll, you know, I hate the thought that she'd have to weather that and go through that without me because we face all our trials in life together and that would be a huge trial for her as her passing would be to me if it happened mm. before me. And and I fear for, you know, the way my, my kids will be impacted, although we, we've all been through that. You've been through the death of both your parents and so have I. Mm. We weather that storm, we go through it and we take from it what we must. But there, there was a time when I would have I was uh, would have been terrified of dying because I didn't know where on earth I was going to end up. That's what I love about this faith that we share is that I, I have an assurance that um, it's going to be okay. In fact, it's going to be better than okay. Yeah, I, look, I hadn't thought about what you were talking about, you know, grieving loved ones you leave behind, but 
what I meant was that I'm confident I'm not leaving a mess behind, basically. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, you're right there. The reason why I have no fear of death is because I know that I have eternal life. Yeah. You know, I've believed in Jesus. So you're not going to die. Well, the Bible calls it a sleep. It's yeah. like a sleep, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so I have no no fear of what lies on the other side. Mm. None, none whatsoever. Mm. Because I know that on, on the other side is, is eternal life. Because here's another thing that I believe. And I've just come to this view after many years of thinking about it. I don't think that there's anything like as chance for a follower of Jesus. Mm. That everything that happens in your life happens f- because God either does it to or for you or because God allows it to happen. Mm. So, you know, I can't explain what happened in MH17. Uh, there's a lot of things I don't know. Yeah. I don't blame God. But in the same way, I don't know when my time will come to die. Mm. And But I'll be ready because it won't be a freak thing, even if it's an accident. Yeah. I know that God will be there. You know, I, I don't want to say it's in his plan. That sounds too cutesy and, and I think it's the wrong wording. But it will be because God allows it to happen. You know, it's time. You said that uh, there's no such thing as coincidence for a believer in Christ. Mm. But I look back on the time when I didn't believe in Christ, which was most of my life. Mm-hmm. I was either atheist or agnostic. And when I look back on that period in particular, I can see clearly where God's hand was manoeuvring to get me perhaps even to this point where we're speaking now. Mm. And that really excites me because even when I didn't believe, yeah. even when I didn't have faith, mm-hmm. he was dramatically influential in my existence and into my future to the point where I got to the gates of death at my own hand and it was like his hand just got into the way. I was about to hit a switch and his fist got in between me and the switch and he Mm. says, no, 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 no. It's not your time yet. It's not your time yet. And um, I've had 13 amazing years since I was aiming at that switch. It wasn't a switch. You know, I'm not going to talk about how, what I was going to do. But I am so glad I didn't do that. In fact, you and I, we were having breakfast this morning. We're talking about death. Mm. I we, don't have, know. we have the most entertaining breakfasts. We do. And I wish we had the microphones on when we were eating breakfast. But we were actually talking about suicide. We've discussed suicide in our, in our chats before. But I, I alluded to the fact that I'd been to four funerals of people who'd taken their own lives. Mm-hmm. And all the churches were packed the funeral services were packed with people who were crying. And I, I saw the, the horrible irony in that because if the people who had taken their lives had realised that they had such an impact in the lives of so many who were grieving for them, they wouldn't have done it because they would have felt loved and they would have felt accepted. And, and, and the, one thing, the one thing that we both agreed on at the breakfast table this morning was that there are two things that need to happen. We need to really look through a clear lens at the people in our lives and see how they see us. Mm. Know that we have much a much greater impact on people than we imagine. Mm-hmm. That our thoughts about our own worthlessness are quite often unfounded. Mm-hmm. And we also have a responsibility to tell each other that we love each other. Mm. Because the absence of that feeling of love is what drives the despair that brings about suicide. Well, I know that, uh, and this is what we're talking about over breakfast, 
uh, I mean, you brought the point home to me at breakfast. I know that I have a tendency to not appreciate the people who love me. Mm. You know, and was it you or Michelle who said that uh, it's because I'm looking down so much? Yeah, I think I said you, you've always got your head down behind the parapets. Yeah. You know, sometimes you've got to stick your head up to see what's actually going on. And then, and then you talked about the very small number of people who you felt actually had compassion for you, and then I mentioned a few names that you hadn't thought of that I knew. That's right. Of people who had compassion and caring for you. And um, so I think it, I think it's really important for us to know that, that our life is going to lead to a good funeral, mm-hmm. that when we die that there will be an outpouring of grief because we are loved and we will be missed. And for us who believe, it's it's a matter of only being missed for a short period of time and then we're all going to be together again. So that's a beautiful hope. But mm. but for me, it's um, in my heart, I'm starting to recognise that I'm, I'm going to have a good funeral because I want to live my life to create that. Mm-hmm. I want a life that, that will, will impact on others in a positive way so that there will be a lot of people who will miss me. Not because I want to, you know, venerate myself or I want to sit up on a pedestal. I believe we all have an obligation to live our lives the very best possible way we can. And that I want people who are listening to this to know that that's coming from the mouth of somebody who thought so little of himself that he wanted to take his own life in 2006. Mm. But I have no fear of death, and I know you don't, and I know that our friendship's going to last a very, very long time, and long beyond our, our death. Anyway, we're enjoying the moment that we've got now. But that's the thing. How do you live in a way that you appreciate, that you can actually see and appreciate the relationships you do have, you know, what what are the things that are stopping uh, men and women, I guess, from seeing and appreciating those relationships? We see it every day. We see judgment, condemnation, lack of forgiveness, hard hearts, um, so many feuds and battles that are being fought on battlefields long since forgotten by the people involved. You know, there, there are. I'm sure there are some people on the planet who hate me, and I've got no idea that they hate me. And the thought that their lives are diminished because of their their hatred of me or their negative feelings of me is really sad. But it doesn't affect my daily life. So, in actual fact, the people who don't like me or hate me are probably living in a prison of their own making that I'm totally unaware of, which is really sad for them. Mm-hmm. And and that's um that's true for me now, in that I think. I really believe that what other people think of me is none of my business, but I have to do the very best that I can to follow a set of principles. I shouldn't look down on anybody unless I'm helping them up. And I I truly believe that there for the grace of God go I. If it wasn't for God's grace, my life would just be a shadow. Mm. I was living in the shadows for most of my life, as you know. Mm. I just lived in the shadows. And... To feel like it's all right to step out of the shadows and walk in the light that actually people might see you mm. and feel that, well, that's okay. I hope they like what they see and I hope they like what they hear. But if they don't, it doesn't matter. But I hope it gets them to question their own beliefs. I hope anyone who doesn't like me would ask why they don't mm. and examine their motives for that because therein lies the answers to some deep set of questions that they may have. Well, I, th- I reckon that these are the sorts of issues that we've got to grapple with if we're going to come to a point where we don't fear our own death. Yeah. And really, I think uh, the fear of death is the driving force uh, behind much of our culture and society. 
Yeah. You know, at every level. Fear is is what mainly drives our culture yeah. at the end of the day, but it's specifically fear of fear of death that drives people in their the way they view the world, that they the way they interact with the world, even the way that they interact with each other. And and so we put up all these defences, all these issues that you talk about yeah. are things that we've got to sort of deal with because, you know, could it be me that day on M eight seventeen? Me and my son. It yeah. could it could be anyone, any time. And what's the acronym for fear? Is an acronym the right word? False evidence appearing real. How does that work? F-E-A-R. It's like, I don't believe I'm loved. Nobody loves me. I don't want to live anymore. I take my own life and the church is full of people. Uh, you bought a lie that you're not lovable, that you're not acceptable, that you're not capable, that you're not adorable. And, and we're all those things in the eyes of God. We're washable. We're, you know, all the ables all come from God and all the senses of worthlessness and other things come from elsewhere. And when we don't see just how special and how amazing we really are, we really are because we don't believe it. We're actually believing false evidence. And, and when you have that view, that position like, uh, like you did where you wanted to end your own life, mm. it was because you considered your life dead already. I was dead in the water. Yeah. You know? I was dead in the water. You know, it's not that... Empty. Yeah, that's right. And, no identity. And that's what drove you, that, that fear. You, didn't, you were afraid yeah. to keep living the way you were living. Yeah, no identity whatsoever. Yeah. Completely, what's the point of me being here? The world would be better off if I wasn't here. And um, I now know that in my heart to be absolutely false evidence that at that time was appearing very real to me. Fear. Mm. The fear of, mm. uh, of realising at the end of my life that a gift that I've been given of however many decades I get mm. on the planet, was to be squandered and wasted in, uh, in pursuit of pornography and um, all the other things that I was addicted to that, that were all designed to try and make me feel better about the fact that I mm. felt worthless and unlovable. Mm. What, and that is false evidence because that's just not true. I now know deep in my heart that I am deeply loved by the divinity that created me. Mm. And when a, a power that great actually decides to attach affection and love to me, one individual, it makes everything else I face every day seem easy to look at, even death, mm. because I know that love will continue after death, as will the love of the people I leave behind will continue after my death. Yeah. You asked me uh, near the beginning uh, how had my life changed mm. because of M817, and you and I were friends before that, and we've been friends since then. Yeah. And you know that my life has changed a lot. Yeah, it has. Because it's been since that time that I've experienced the greatest period of growth in my life. Mm. I've been dealing with a lot of the issues you've been talking about because I've determined to be of use in the world and to my family and find my identity and be a man and actually be someone. You know, I've been discovering who I am. I've been setting boundaries. I've been learning who God is. He wasn't the sort of being that I thought he was, you know, is much more loving, you know, much kinder, much bigger than I used to think. I think something like what I experienced there with almost, with almost being on M817, I guess that can create a lot of atheists. Mm. It can create a lot of depression. Uh, you know, when you think about all that stuff, it can send you in a downward spiral. I guess it all depends on the choices you make. I've spent a lot of my time in the industry. I work in the airline industry looking at 
crash investigations and listening to cockpit voice recordings and all that. I actually did that as part of my job for a while when I was working. Um, I went to United Airlines in America for six weeks on uh, doing some secondment stuff over there with them and we spent several tens of hours listening to actual cockpit voice recordings of people dying Mm. uh, in the cockpit. God was mentioned on every occasion. Wow. I'm sure that on MH17 that those people who weren't killed on the initial impact would have been of the missile striking because the aircraft fuselage was peppered with shrapnel. Mm. Um, A lot of people would have been killed instantly, gratefully. But anyone who lingered for a while, I'm certain they would have, the word God would have gone through their thinking at some stage. And it's like that old saying, Elliot, you know, there's no atheists in the foxholes. In the trenches. In the trenches, yeah. Everyone's every cockpit voice recording I've ever heard, God was mentioned. Every single one of them. Well, I guess I'm not afraid of death because I'm not waiting to mention God at the end. I'm happy to mention him now. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> Oh, that's that's beautiful, yeah. That's reassurance. Yeah. You can't buy that for monthly insurance premiums. No, absolutely no. not. Anyway, that was my experience on MH seventeen. Yeah, I've had a lot of near-death experiences, quite a few. What was the worst? Oh, well, let me say, I've, as a crop-dusting pilot, I've collided with power lines trying to fly under them. Oh, no. Um, and survived that. I've been blown up in a, a cabin cruiser that I had when I was a young man. On the, I bought an old run-down cabin cruiser and did it up, and one day I was cruising along and it exploded. There was a fuel leak, and it went up like a bomb. I was. That's a boat, is it? Yeah, it's a, wow. a boat. Uh, I've been in a bad car accident. I've um, been run over by a speedboat and had 70 stitches in my head. Wow. Um, I was pummeled in a massive surf on the Gold Coast when I shouldn't have been there and thought I was going to drown. I've had a lot of... Actually, that that's the one I want to talk about because um, out of all of them, a lot of them are quite dramatic, but I went to nearby Gold Coast Beach that my kids and I used to be involved in nippers in and everything, and I had a, a surf ski, and I wasn't very good at uh, using it, but... There was a massive cyclonic surf on and all the beaches were closed and I took my oldest daughter down to the beach to have a look at the big waves and we were watching them and I saw one guy on a surfboard riding one of these waves and I I got really cocky and I looked at my surf ski which was strapped to the roof of my car and I thought, I'm going to have the ride of my life. I'm going to go out on that surf ski. If I can get out through the shore break and catch one of those massive waves in, this is going to be great. My heart was in my mouth and my daughter's saying, Dad, don't do this. And it was a cold, windy day, but it didn't matter. And I, I unstrapped the surf ski and I got down <laughs> to the, the shore and I had a, a rope attaching the, the paddle to the front of the ski. And I tried to paddle out through the shore break and I kept getting knocked off. And God was telling me, don't go out there, you <laughs> idiot. Anyhow, I eventually made it out through the shore break and I felt really buoyant at the fact that I'd done that. And I must have had some skill to get through the massive waves pounding in on me. And I saw this big wave coming in. It must have been 12 to 14 feet and it was starting to crest. Wow. And I thought, this is the wave I'm going to catch. And I got on it and I felt I was going supersonic down the face of this wave and it rolled over the top of me. And I was absolutely pummeled. And I hung onto the the paddle, hoping that the rope would bring the ski back to me and I'd have some form of getting on board that ski and getting back to shore because I realised I was well and truly out of my depth. Mm. And the rope broke oh. and the ski had gone and I'm holding this paddle which I eventually let go of because it was of no use to me and each successive wave that came through was driving me further and further under the water and I couldn't feel the bottom. I was in very deep water and I surfaced at one stage and the surfboard rider that I'd witnessed 
was going past me on a wave and I, I looked up at him and I held my hand up and I said, help me, help me, I'm drowning. And he yelled expletives at me and told me to get off his wave and he kept going and um, he was really angry with me that I was out there and he didn't care less. He couldn't care and uh, each wave knocked more and more wind out of me and there was this massive wave came in and I felt that was it. That was the last and I couldn't feel another thing. I got a glimpse of my daughter panicking on the shoreline at one stage. I thought, that's it, I'm drowning. And as that wave drove me down, I felt the sand under my feet, Mm -hmm. very deep. Mm. And I had enough strength to launch off the sand and push me out of the water and I took a big gulp of air. And next minute I can feel more and more traction on the sand and I managed to crawl out up the beach, Mm. gasping for air, and I lay on my back on the sand, filling my lungs up with air, looking at scattered cloud blowing over me in this strong wind and seagulls circling above me. And I felt more alive then than I'd ever felt in my entire life. And I'd often wished I could have bottled that feeling and kept it going in me. I I would love to have felt that alive every minute of every day. I just felt so free, so grateful and so ready to take on anything except big surf again. And uh, I've often said that to people, that sometimes you've got to come really close to death to realise how great your life is, mm. which is, I think, what happened to you. Well, we're programmed to live. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. All of our systems in our body are designed to repair, to heal themselves. You know, I believe God made us to live, not to die. Yeah. And dying is not natural. It's... It's not normal. It's inevitable, but It's inevitable. But that's why after that experience you had in the surf, yeah. you know, you had that feeling. Yeah. You know, of being alive again, being free, able to take on anything. Yeah. Because we were programmed to live, we are programmed to embrace life. We are happiest when we live fully, when we know who we are, when we have the right kind of loving, productive uh, relationships. Mm. You know, like when, like you say to me, get over yourself, Ellie. You know, when we <laughs> get out, get over ourselves. I haven't said that to you for a long time. No, because I'm improving. Yeah, yeah, we're all improving. Yeah, and we're programmed to live, and and the way to live is to accept Jesus Christ. Yeah, accept that He's there, accept that He loves you. Yeah, you know, accept what He's done to save you so that you can enter into eternal life. And there's a verse in in John, he who has the son has life. He who doesn't have the son doesn't have life. I can't believe as an atheist and an agnostic of some 50 years' experience that I'm actually sitting here nodding in agreement with you. Well, there you go. Life is a funny thing. Life is a funny thing. I had a conversation with one of my co-pilots one day who said that I just seemed really relaxed and he noticed a difference in me and he said, what do you put it down to? And I said, it's faith. And he said... Oh, you're one of those born-again Christian guys. And I thought about what he said, and I thought about the term born again, and I thought, well, yeah, I actually am born again. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm, I've, I've started my life over again. And he said to me, how can you believe in all that rubbish? I mean, our job's pretty technical and scientific, and um, how can you believe in all that rubbish? And I'm thinking, well, how can you fly over the Great Barrier Reef at 38,000 feet and look at the jewels laid out beneath mm. you and not ask a question like, how or why anyway and he kept pushing the point and I I didn't want to get too involved in a conversation with him but he he was baiting me a little bit and I looked at him and I said well you obviously don't have any faith and he said no not in things I can't see I said so if I if I may let me just say to you what I think you believe he said yeah go for it and I said to him well you probably believe you um 
you evolve from slime, your life has no purpose, and when you die, you're going to go back into the ground and be worm tucker. <laughs> now, I'm not, I'm not saying this is my thought. I heard this from a, a wonderful evangelist when I first started thinking about God, mm. a guy called Herb Larson, amazing guy. He said, yeah, I agree. That's, that's what I see. And I said to him, well, I believe I was created by someone who loves me. My life has a real purpose, and when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And he said, yeah, I get that. And I just looked at him straight in the eye and I said, who's going to have a better day, you or me? <laughs> and he, he just looked at me and burst out laughing like you just did. And, and I said, you know what, if you could be with me at the end of time, at the end of history, and you could say to me, see, I told you it was all a lie. I'd say, well, blow me down, you could have fooled me. But I'll tell you what, I've had the best life I could have ever had as a result of that belief. And you know what, if, if all the Bible is, is a mass-produced, published by the millions and hundreds of millions, hard to read sometimes, like Shakespeare, if, mm-hmm. if you just treat the Bible as a piece mm-hmm. of literature and not as the Word of God, and, and whether God exists or not is irrelevant to the terms of the conversation, the fact is that belief and that understanding based on a faith of something you can't see will carry you through, will give you an amazing life. And I don't see God as uh, someone who's following me around with a clipboard recording every stupid thing I do or everything I do wrong and he's going to make me pay for it one day. Mm-hmm. But I know a lot of people who believe in God who seem that way, which is really sad. And I think you and I have the same belief of God. It's just this benevolent, loving Father who just puts up with all our garbage and continues to love us in spite of that and continues to offer us an alternative choice, continues to offer us... Um, hope for the future in spite of our stupidness and our, our irregularities. Why wouldn't you want to spend what's left of your life involved in a relationship like that rather than being condemned or thought of being condemned and living in false evidence appearing real, living in fear? That's what I intend to do with my life. Yeah, me you too. Know? But it doesn't just fall into place. It's a struggle because of where we've come from. Yeah. You know, the brokenness of our past. But I'm getting there. I'm working towards it. Yeah, well, I hope you're as active in learning how to fish as you are in uh, building your relationship with God. No, because I've got a mate who doesn't take me fishing. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And and out the window as we sit here recording this, looking across at a shed that's got a, a nice boat with a ro- lot of rods sitting in there, and we're about two and a half hours from the sea. It's a bit hard to cop sometimes. Hey, why don't we do another one of these uh, podcasts sitting in your boat one day in the oh. river? It's going to be hard for the audio because my fishing reel is going to be screaming all the time with big fish on the end of it and people won't be able to hear what we're saying. Uh, Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Good talking to you, Ellie. All right. It's great talking to you. Love you, brother. Love you too. Bye. Mates in Courage, brought to you by Good News Unlimited. To sign up for Graham and Ellie's daily spiritual message emails about recovering from addictions hurts and hang-ups, visit goodnewsunlimited.com. To book Graham and Ellie for talks, get in touch at the same website. And if you're troubled by anything you've heard, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or an equivalent service in your own country. Thanks for listening. Mates in Courage. Catch you in the next episode.